It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see. Silent Green is people! Need my sister and my daughter! Rosebud. What's in the box? And like that, he's gone. Hello and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and today we will be spoiling Annihilation, the second film from Alex Garland, who was the director of Ex Machina a couple of years ago. Joining me in the Slate studio is Marissa Martinelli, a browbeat writer and editorial assistant at Slate. Hey, Marissa. Hello, Dana. And joining us from the Bay Area by phone is Ingu Kang, who is a culture and tech writer for Slate. Hi, Ingu. Hello, hello, hello. So uh, I'm having both of you in because you've both written on Annihilation, which I haven't. Inku, you reviewed it for Slate, and I want to get to your review and talk about that. And Marissa, you've written obsessively on a weird <laughs> sound in the soundtrack of Annihilation <laughs> and interviewed the composer of the score about the weird sound, and we will get to that as well. Um, but before we start spoiling, let me just go around and ask just sort of your basic thumbs up, thumbs down reaction. Would you send your friends to see Annihilation? Oh, man. I really liked Annihilation. I'm not sure if I would send my friends without some caveats right. beforehand. Depends on the friend. <laughs> right, for sure. Uh, what about you, Ingo? I would probably say the same thing. I think it's a really interesting experience, but I don't know if that means they would enjoy the movie. Yeah, you say that in your review, and I, I find it really um, very true of the movie for me, is that I felt sort of entranced and fascinated while watching it, but there was also so much dissatisfaction and so many unanswered questions, which I know to some critics, I was reading a one critic, Alison Wilmore for BuzzFeed, who, who loved exactly that, who loved that the movie refused to gratify the desires of science fiction fans who want everything explained for them. So we can get into all the things that aren't explained and how we feel about them. But first, let's just set up what happens in the movie. So as the movie opens, we get the frame story, which is something that recurs a lot through the movie. This isn't one of those frame stories that just slaps on a beginning and an end and then sticks the whole story in the middle. We keep on recurring to this scene in what seems to be a sterile room in some kind of government facility. A man in a hazmat suit, played by Benedict Wong, is interviewing Natalie Portman, who is sitting at a table looking sort of stunned, and he's trying to get a story out of her. And Marissa, do you want to give us some of what that interview consists of? Right. Well, at this point, we don't really know much about what's going on. But Benedict Wong's character keeps asking about all these people who we haven't met yet, all these characters. And all of Natalie Portman's answers are very vague and ominous. So he'll say, what happened to Josie? And she'll say, I don't know. I think she actually does say that one of them, it might be Josie, is dead. She some does of them are dead. A Josie, of them are she doesn't know. Right. Um, but some of them, oh, she's dead. So right at the beginning, we already know the fates of some of the characters, more or less. Before we even know who those characters are. Right. Right. So then flashback in time, we established that Natalie Portman's character, Lena, is a doctor and a teacher at a medical school. And we see her giving this lecture on mitosis, basically, on cell division and uh, on what turns out to be a cancer cell that we see on screen dividing many times. So this is a moment that you know, this is one of the few moments in the movie, actually, where Garland kind of lays out his themes in a very uh, didactic manner. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that there's this movie in some way is going to be about doubling and mutation, which are both themes that become really important later. 
Then in a very brief setup, a colleague of her follows her out of her class, invites her to his house for the weekend to some sort of family gathering he's having with his wife. And she says she can't do it because she has to go paint her bedroom. And this is an important scene because it establishes that she is sort of a war widow, that her husband, Oscar Isaac, has been sent off on a military mission and has not been heard from in one year and is assumed dead. Uh, But as she is painting her bedroom, which seems like a scene of renewal and as though even though she's turned down this invitation to kind of move on with her life, like she is finally starting to move on in walks Oscar Isaac into the house. Standing at the door. And you don't know, especially because he has this kind of uh, grim, somber appearance. You don't know. Is he a ghost? Is he in her imagination? Is he really standing there? But once she goes over and embraces him and starts to talk to him, you realize that it is him and he has somehow survived whatever the mysterious mission is and come back. But he doesn't seem to be intact, either physically or mentally. No, he's sort of staring into space and he can't answer any of her questions, much as we saw her just moments earlier in the framing device, not able to answer any of Benedict Wong's questions. Right. He doesn't seem to know where he's been or how long he's been gone or even quite be aware of who he is now that he's back or who his wife is. It almost seems as if he's he's in this kind of somnambulistic state. But this part of the movie ends very quickly in kind of a, a catastrophe where he begins to physically fall apart. He starts, what does he do? Coughing Have seizures, up coughing up yeah. blood. She gets in an ambulance and takes him to the hospital. And then that's when things kind of go down thriller territory. <laughs> They're chased to the side of the road by these mysterious black SUVs that turn out to be basically government operatives who want to take Oscar Isaac's body back. I guess they, nobody can know whatever has happened to him. So he gets taken away. She gets sedated and taken away and then, you know, presumably goes to this government facility where we later see her being interviewed. So, Ingo, you want to take us through what happens when Natalie wakes up in the uh, in the sterile facility? So basically, she is like, you know, a normal person and says, where am I? Why am I here? Can I leave? And is not told really the answers to any of those things. And she finds out through a military psychologist played by Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, who is like sort of like wonderfully wriggly, but then ultimately never gets much to do. Uh, we can talk about that more later. Basically, it's told that her, there is somehow this like mysterious a force that is enveloping a part of a national park and it's been there for like three years somehow no one is doing anything about it the way that I reviewed it um, the way that I put it in my review is that it's sort of this like weird Bermuda Triangle on land where all of these communication signals go awry and none of the cameras work inside and essentially Natalie Portman is deduces that that's where her husband had been and that's why he's come out so broken and so she decides to go in along with a group of scientists um, to go into the weird zone to find out what happened to her husband yeah and this whole part to me was very i mean i guess alex garland doesn't really care about this stuff and that he was kind of trying to set up very quickly so that he could get into the the cool part of them wandering into this alien or you know in some way supernaturally influenced zone the shimmer the shimmer the shimmer as it's called because with really cool looking special effects it um it sort of 
prismatically bends light, right? So it sort of looks like this wall of pearlescent is the word you use in your your review, and that's a great word for it. It's kind of, you know, this iridescent, gooey glob that seems to be surrounding this particular part of land. It looks like the surface of a soap bubble. That's what I kept thinking right. about. Like, you really wanted to just pop it. Right. And that effect is um, it's sort of everywhere inside it, too. Once they go inside, you'll always notice in little edges of the frame, there'll be these little kind of rainbow shimmers and stuff. And that is really beautifully done. I think that the set design and the kind of whole production design is great in this movie. Um, but I didn't think it made any sense how this team of women, I guess it's five women, get put together to go into the zone. For one thing, Jennifer Jason Lee says, nobody has gone into the zone so far except military teams. And yet we don't see them getting any military training. I guess Natalie Portman's already supposed to be an army vet. But it just seems like I would have liked to have there be, even if it was, um, if everything they learned in that training session turned out to be wrong, right? I mean, Mm. if there was some sense of like what people thought the shimmer was at some point or what you might need to go into it. For example, why don't they go into it wearing gas masks? Okay, I know I'm being really, really (laughs) overly literal about this, but nobody knows what happens when you go in, right? Nobody's gone in and come out. There's no communications that can go through this shimmering wall. And so it seems like just to take precautions, you'd say, oh, well, maybe you can't breathe when you're in there. So we'll bring our own oxygen. But no, they just kind of suit up with packs and walk in. Well, at this point in the film, we're sort of led to understood that they're just throwing stuff at the wall and hoping something sticks. No teams have ever come back except for Oscar Isaac. And Jennifer Jason Lee, who has been running the whole operation, has now decided that she's actually going to go in. And she seems very desperate and sort of despondent about the whole thing. Um, So it seems to me like it, it was implied that they've sort of tried everything. And at this point, they're just... Because the shimmer is spreading. That's the fear is that the shimmer is going to spread and spread until eventually it consumes cities. And at this point, all they want is to find out what it is and how to contain it. Right. So let's go through the the five women that go in. In addition to Natalie Portman's character, Lena, um, everybody seems to have some kind of scientific background who goes in. Uh, Dr. Ventress, who's Jennifer Jason Leigh's character, is a psychologist and seems to be maybe some sort of trauma specialist or something like that, right? She's the first person sent in to interview Natalie Portman. Then there's Tessa Thompson, whose character is what kind of scientist? A physicist, right? Yes. Um, there's Gina Rodriguez, who I can't remember what her qualifications are. She's a paramedic. Right. A military paramedic. Right. Yep. And then a character played by Tuva Novotny, the Swedish actress who is a geologist. So they're each supposed to gather something different about this this shimmering region as they go in. Um, so let's talk about what happens after they get in to the shimmer. Uh, here is where the stuff starts happening that I'm glad we're doing a spoiler special and that we're not reviewing because we can give it all away. Um, But stuff gets really strange as soon as they get into the shimmer. And it gets strange in a very inconsistent way, which I guess in some ways makes sense in that this is a movie about a place with no rules, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not the case that you're, it's not a world building exercise where we're slowly learning what it's like to be in the shimmer. It's just more like anything could happen at any time. When they first go in, I guess the first weird thing that happens is they lose a sense of time. Right. So they wake up one morning and they discover, oh, enough food rations are gone that we must have been here for three or four days. But it seems like we just got here. So there's some kind of memory lapse happening. But later on, that effect doesn't seem to continue. Right. No, just it seems like that's something that's either specific to the outer edges of the shimmer or it was convenient for Garland to sort of skip those initial stages yeah. of discovery. And he gets off the hook by having Jennifer Jason Lee's character say at one point, oh, well, the closer you get to the center, the lighthouse, which is where they're headed for, which is the sort of center of the phenomenon, the uh, the, the more the rules change, the weirder things get. Um, but even that doesn't seem to have a whole lot of logic to it because losing but, like, time is already weird. How do you know that? 
Yeah. How would she? How would she know that? You're right. And she seems to oh. know a few things about the region that she wouldn't know. You know what? I don't want to break the flow, but early in the film. I think after the framing device, um, but very early before the credits, we see a mysterious object falling from the sky and strike a lighthouse. Um, and that is explained as sort of the center of the shimmer. And it has all spread from that point. And they've had to evacuate the swampland around the lighthouse as it has grown bigger and bigger. Right. And so all we saw at the beginning is what looked like sort of a meteor or something, right? A mm-hmm. big a big streak of light hitting this lighthouse in the middle of nowhere. And that's the, the point that they're headed for. Um, so yeah, stuff gets really kooky the first few nights. That first night they lose a tra- the track of time. I believe it's just one night after that that they bunk at this former military base that's somewhere on the on the shimmer premises, and uh, and a bunch of freaky freaky stuff starts to happen there, including they locate an old film, a, a video that was taken of the last encampment of a mission there, which includes Oscar Isaac's character in this video. And what happens in the video? Oh, it's so gross! It's so gross! I can't even describe it. All right, let's all let's all describe it together. So um, so <laughs> no, we see you. we see one dude, not Oscar Isaac, from the mission who's who seems to be in horrible discomfort and is squirming around and has this kind of distended abdomen. And by this, you know, scary night light where you can barely see what's going on, the Oscar Isaac character kind of opens up his stomach, almost cesarean section style. He just cuts it open, which I think is like sort of one of the more freaky things because he almost cuts it in the shape of like a square or like a rectangle as if like he's carving out like a Teletubby, like into his <laughs> And first you think like, oh, did Oscar Isaac go insane? Because one of the other things that we're constantly told is that this place either kills you or it makes you go crazy and then kill all of your teammates. And so you sort of briefly wonder like, oh, like, eh, is his mind gone already? And, and the other teammates out- are holding this man down. It's the whole yeah. team is involved. So who among us has the fortitude to describe what's happening in the guy's abdomen? It's just a wriggling giant worm. I mean, or it's possibly fine. his intestines coming. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's enormous. Whatever it is, it's it's very large. It is bigger than intestine size. I mean, the fact that it's never explained what it is is very symptomatic of this movie, and you can take away from that whether you'll love it or hate it. Right? One of the people watching the paramedic, I believe, the Gina Rodriguez character, speculates that it's just a trick of the light, and it's just how his intestines look. I think she's too freaked out to face any other possibility. And then someone else says it looks like a giant worm. But what the movie seems to be moving toward is the idea that you know his body is mutating somehow, that like his intestines are taking on their own life. And that is really ratified by this other freaky thing they find at that installation, which might be that guy's body or another guy's body. I didn't know it was supposed to be that guy. But that's, it this is, that it was. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's the moment when you start to see, or one of the early moments when you start to see that what's going on within the shimmer is this kind of uh, transformation of life where plant life and animal life are mixing genes and, you know, new forms are evolving really fast in strange ways. And so this guy's body has kind of turned into this. I mean, it looks like some kind of art installation. It's all like this overgrown, flowering, weird kind of wall mural or something. It's beautiful and gruesome, much like the shimmer itself. I mean, at this point, we've seen that happening with fauna, some flowers that are growing different species of flower from the same stem, which Natalie Portman's character as a biologist is like, that's not possible. We've it seen- doesn't seem like you'd need a degree. <laughs> figure that out. <laughs> um, we've seen a, an alligator or a crocodile that has rows of teeth like a shark. Also, again, Natalie Portman says that's not possible, but repeatedly they're seeing it happen. Right. So, yeah. So 
this is, and this, I think, gets to what Alex Garland cares about and wants to do with this movie is that he's in love with these images of mutation and transmogrification between animal and plant. Can I just chime in here and say, I first of all, when they initially also go in, they say that you, you might end up hallucinating things, and they completely drop the ball on that. And I think like a sort of like more unreliable narration is something that would have like really worked with this. And it's just not developed as fully as I had hoped. And then the other thing is that with all of these like, uh, hybrid animals um like the alligator shark or like the bear with the face which i'm sure we'll get to the bear with the human face um i just really wanted a lot more out of these animals um there was like one that i thought was really beautiful it's sort of like a couple of albino deer with uh flowers uh and vines growing out of their antlers and my first impression was like oh that's pretty and then immediately i thought oh i've probably seen that on etsy before (laughs) yeah you say that in your review you could find deer with flowering antlers on etsy you probably could but i really think that like with a film that keeps telling you how weird it is it's just like never as weird as i wanted it to be until we get to the lighthouse but until then uh, it's more just like the area telling you over and over, like, or the characters telling you how weird everything is. And then me wanting to be transported to that weirdness and just sort of like feeling dr- like stuck on earth. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that was something I found really frustrating because if you're going to tell me that I'm going to go to unicorn land, I want to be in unicorn land. Yeah, I, I I completely see what you mean. I mean, a movie that's that I think this movie references deliberately, and that certainly it resembles in structure and is being mentioned in a lot of the criticism is Tarkovsky's Stalker, Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker, which is also the story of you know people, a group of men who go to explore a strange zone that, in the case of that movie, seems to have been contaminated by some kind of chemical or nuclear fallout or something like that, but in which the laws of physics have been kind of changed in ways that they don't understand, and there's a similar kind of penetration to the center of weirdness. And okay, not everybody can be Andre Tarkovsky. That is a great masterpiece. <laughs> um, but but something that that movie does really effectively is make the viewer feel kind of unsettled as a viewer. As you say, Ingo, it makes you wonder if your perceptions are right or if the character's perceptions are accurate to what's happening. Whereas I think you're right that this movie is more decoratively weird. <laughs> you know, it, it creates weird things and puts them in front of our eyes. But I don't think it draws us, or me at least. I know some people felt really differently and absolutely adored this movie, but I didn't feel that as a viewer I was being transformed. And I think you say this as well when you write about it, Ingo, that when you walk out, you've had that experience. You've been through like the annihilation machine, but it hasn't really affected you. Ingo mentioned the screaming bear. I think we should definitely talk about the yeah, screaming bear. Yeah, let's bear. get to the screaming bear, especially because he's responsible, since it's a spoiler, we'll say it right now, he's responsible for the deaths of two of these women, right? I was going through in my mind afterwards, like, what happens to everyone? Okay, killed by a bear, killed by a bear. What <laughs> happens to two of our five main characters? So, yeah, let's go go off on the bear. Well, while our characters are sort of holed up in this previous military installation that used to be outside the Shimmer but has since been consumed by the Shimmer, uh, they are attacked by this sort of strange bear hybrid and it takes the first member of their team i forget the actress's name tuva novotny the swede yeah yes um and she's sort of dragged into the darkness uh so they don't know if she's dead or alive uh she disappears and they decide to keep moving 
Then there's another moment that me, with my desire for this movie to resemble any kind of actual sane uh, mission that anyone would undertake, they send Natalie Portman alone into some mysterious shimmery forest to look for her body that makes no sense whatsoever and no decent team leader would do it it made me very disappointed in jennifer jason Lee. <laughs> and gina rodriguez's character is not happy about it because at this point in the film she wants to go back she has had enough of the shimmer she wants to take josie who's the physicist played by tessa thompson and she wants to get the heck out of there but jennifer jason lee insists that they keep going yeah that division in the team is really is interesting and that starts to happen around that point which is that Tessa Thompson and Gina Rodriguez both start to decide, like, this is bullshit. <laughs> I want out of here. Jennifer Jason Lee, for reasons we have we don't understand until later on, is determined to get to the lighthouse at all costs. And Natalie Portman seems to be at first be wishy-washy, but ultimately she carries on as well. We do sort of find out very quickly, or at least before the characters do, why Jennifer Jason Lee is so determined to keep going. And that's because in the frame story, uh, we hear an exchange between Benedict Wong and Natalie Portman, and Benedict Wong says, well, you must have guessed that Ventress had cancer. And Natalie Portman says, yes, I figured it out. Um, so considering at that point we're already starting to think about mutation, you know, on one hand, we know that this character probably doesn't have a long time to live, but also thinking about how having her cells in this world that refracts and mutates so rapidly will affect things is pretty interesting. Yeah, and it affects maybe also what happens to her character in The Lighthouse, which we'll get to. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So, okay, so the bear, the bear has <laughs> this particular quality, which actually is one of the cooler uh, imaginative leaps in, in the Shimmer world, I think. So um, after he's dragged off the Swede, and then the next day as they're walking around, Natalie Portman goes stupidly alone into the forest and finds her body, discovers that she is, in fact, dead. Um, Somehow knows exactly in which direction to walk toward to find a dead body right even though they have no compass or any kind of tools and she finds her way back just fine too that's another of those things where it's sort of rules are established for the shimmer world and then they're broken and it doesn't seem to really matter um, but i want to get to the second appearance of the bear because it's one of the scariest scenes in the movie and uh, and also i think like i said one of the best imaginative leaps that garland makes so so another night they're they're hunkered, hunkered down somewhere in an abandoned house in a village that's been evacuated because the shimmer was going to consume it and uh and they hear the sound at night. Oh, we should also... Well, Gina Rodriguez freaks out first. Yeah, Gina Rodriguez <laughs> is starting to go crazy at this point. So it's starting to affect her mind. She doesn't trust anyone anymore. She doesn't know that there actually was a bear because she never saw it that night that it dragged off uh, the two Benavani characters. So she's now thinking that maybe other people are playing mind games and that the bear is just a complete invention. Also, she figures out that Natalie Portman is there because of her husband. And so she believes that the other teammates might be hiding other secrets from her. Right. Right. Natalie Portman did not tell anyone that ahead of the mission that her husband was one of the survivors or the only yeah, survivor. And I don't understand at all why that. I mean, I feel like if an employee wanted to keep like 
personal information to herself, I would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. But we're not dealing with like a great HR department. (laughs) If we had been in charge of this mission, they would have gotten things done. (laughs) No bear eating for us. I promise I would not have tied you guys to chairs as I started to lose my mind if we led this mission. So that is the next thing that happens. In fact, the Gina Rodriguez character um, manages to get all of them. I guess they're in their sleep at the time. I don't know how she does it, but they all three, all of the three remaining others find themselves themselves gagged and tied to chairs while she holds them at gunpoint, um, confronting them with the knowledge that she knows about Oscar Isaac. Therefore, Natalie Portman's character is a liar. Therefore, maybe they're all liars. She seems really volatile and like she could do anything at any time. And then we hear this sound outside that sounds like a woman screaming for help. It sounds like the voice of the Tuva Novotny character, the geologist who has been, we already know, dragged to her death. Um, So Gina Rodriguez, not believing that she ever died in the first place, says, we've got to go save her, we've got to go help her. And she goes outside of the um, the house they're bunkered in. And then what? Somebody else take it away. You guys take the gross stuff. I'm farming it out. Well, we I don't think we see directly what happens to Gina Rodriguez, but it doesn't sound good as all of our other three characters are still tied to their chairs. So we see Gina Rodriguez goes off screen and we hear, you know, carnage, uh, but we don't actually see it. And then the bear enters the scene, sort of lumbers in, and all the characters are staying very, very still in their chairs so that it it isn't, you know, provoked into attacking again. And then it opens its mouth and it screams and it's a woman's scream and it's screaming things like, please help. Right. And it's very scary on one hand, but I also, I couldn't help but think of the Casey Green comic where there's two scientists and one of them says, I've invented a robot that screams. And the other scientist is like, Why? That's how I felt about this scene. I was like, Alex Garland, why? No, but it's a great, I think it's one of the the, the smarter things that he does with his evolutionary fantasy in, in the movie. Because the idea, which comes up again later in the movie as well, is that once a previously ex- existing organic form in this shimmer world has absorbed human DNA for whatever reason, whether it's eating a human or somehow other, otherwise coming in contact with, that it incorporates some part of their behavior or their physiognomy or whatever. And uh, that's... And that's, so the idea that you would adapt the voice. Works. That's that's how I feel. I agree with Ingu on this. That's a fascinating creature, but I also was kind of like, what? how does this work exactly? And there are other elements of the film that I also sort of found fascinating, but also not maybe scientifically sound. But that's, but that's, genu- but that's genuine science fiction to me. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, it's not how DNA works. But the idea that some sort of alien being would be able to kind of turn behavior into a into a a trait that could be stolen. You know, the idea that you would sort of take on the behavior of your prey in order to get more prey. It's just a a cool, scary science fiction idea. Like, there's some moments where this movie is doing what I kind of consider real science fiction, like speculative dreaming about what a completely different universe might be like. And that bear seemed like one of them. He's certainly freaky looking. That's true. He's supersized in his face. I wouldn't quite call it a human face, but it's sort of like a skull, almost like a a bear skull. It didn't, I mean, B-A-R-E skull. It didn't. (laughs) seem to have any fur on it it's definitely terrifying i i think that like if there were maybe like i don't know like if there was like one constant rule in this universe that was actually followed through with um i would not have minded as much and i did find that bear extremely creepy but at the same time uh it's very clear that alex garland is just taking like a bunch of like random ideas thinking like oh this would be good like in the moment like and then let's never think about it ever again and so once you hit like the umpteenth point 
um, it, I think like that was the point at which like I got really frustrated um, because I just wanted for something to make sense for me to grab onto. And I guess like you could technically say that like the bear, I don't know, like mated with a tape recorder somewhere or something along the line. But my point is, I found that bear exceedingly inventive and also exceedingly frustrating. Ingo used the word earlier, experience, to describe this film. And I think that is a great word for it because it does leave you with a lot of unanswered questions. It doesn't always follow its own rules, or at least it doesn't seem to. But some of the inventions Garland comes up with are fascinating. And one that is sort of similar to the bear in that it doesn't make it, you really have to wrap your head around it is the tattoo uh, in the film. So early in the film, we see, after they've gone into the shimmer, we see Natalie Portman look at her forearm and she says, oh, I have a bruise. It must be from when we fought the shark alligator. Um, but as we go back to the frame story, you can see on Natalie Portman's arm where that bruise is, and this is later because this is, you know, a flash forward, she has a tattoo that sort of looks like an infinity sign. But when you look closer, it's a kind of snake eating itself. Yeah, the Ouroboros, they call it. Yes. It's like an old Greek symbol. And so as once you, you know, they call attention to it and she looks at it in the frame story. Once you start looking for it, you start seeing it on other characters. So you see it on Gina Rodriguez's character, Anya. Uh, you see it on the guy whose stomach is cut open in the video and you start to wonder whose tattoo was that originally as the dna is being refracted through the shimmer where did this tattoo come from why do so many characters have it <laughs> see you know here's where i become ingo and say but tattoos have nothing to do that's with dna exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly why it reminds me of the bear and that it's this fascinating concept that is true science fiction and it raises more questions than it answers can I be like an exceeding comic book guy for one second <laughs> and say Fanboy that it's not science fiction, that is fantasy? That's um, fair. And if this movie wants to sell itself to me as as science fiction, it needs to have like some scientific principle in it. I I don't know why I'm being like such a stickler for it, but I think one of the reasons why I called it an experience is that it was almost like you were on drugs, right? In that, like, you have these like bends in reality, and you but it's do less not fun ex- than being on drugs. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it does. That's what I mean about it not being a stalker movie. Is that to me, it didn't feel like oh god, a spell is being worked on my mind. Anyway, go ahead. But the thing is that like you don't expect any of those bends in reality to make sense for more than like one second at a time. Mm -hmm. And so you just sort of like go along with it. Yeah. And and this kind of, this kind of refusal to, to, to take science seriously, you know, not necessarily to be scientifically accurate, but to take the principles of science seriously, I think really comes through in the way that these characters who are all scientists make their discoveries, which is, which puts the viewer in a very passive position. There's a moment when Tessa Thompson's character, the physicist, makes this big discovery about how light behaves and how everything behaves really inside the shimmer, which explains not only why communications can't get outside the iridescent soap bubble wall, but why a lot of these um, things within the shimmer are happening. And it doesn't really make sense, but it all has to do with refraction and the idea that not only light is refracted, but DNA is refracted, whatever that would mean. Anyway, she just says this to everybody else. She just kind of has that revelation and explains it. And uh, and we don't really understand it, nor were we given any clues to understand it along the way. So there's just a position that that puts the viewer in that's, that's 
not very challenging. And that same thing happens later with some cells, her own cells, her own blood cells that Natalie Portman looks at under a microscope, which we see dividing in the same way that we saw those cells dividing in the opening scene. But they look all shimmery and rainbowy and cool. And then she's falling apart like, oh, my God, the revelation I've had from looking at my rainbow cells. But we don't really know what it is until she flatly tells everyone else later on. So those seem like moments when you could have taken advantage of the fact that we have five women scientists in an area where all these scientific laws are being broken. And, you know, yet our relationship to it is not kind of uh, deductive and interesting. Ingu, in your review, you compared this movie to Arrival, which was one of my favorite movies uh, from last year. And I think that's a really interesting comparison because Arrival has sort of a similar concept. It's this restricted area. It's a female scientist who goes in to figure out what the heck is going on. In this case, it's explicitly aliens and uh, Annihilation. It's a little bit less clear. But what's interesting is that a movie like Arrival is only interested in the process of discovery. And there are unanswered questions, but they all fall within rules. Annihilation, on the other hand, sort of tosses out that process entirely. It's not interested in the process of discovery so much as it is in the discovery itself. And I think that's part of why the results of those discoveries are sometimes confusing and break their own rules of the universe. Yeah, Arrival is a good comparison also because, yeah, as you say, it's all about process. It's about um, the scientific process and her kind of we don't quite know how she deciphers those alien alphabet letters that she or signs that she deciphers but at least we see her in the process of doing it right whereas but isn't arrival also about like once you make this discovery what you can actually use it for and so there is this genuine um respect for the scientific process and what it can yield i realize that this is maybe not like the most fair comparison but i was very annoyed that in the book it um the, the Jeff Jeff Vandermeer novel that this is based yes. on. Uh, which it's a very loose adaptation. Um, and I will note that firsthand. But um, I was very annoyed that in the book, uh, the main character's motivation really is a love of knowledge. And she has this like very beautiful extended uh, flashback, essentially, about how she used to just like her parents used to have this like very neglected pool and she would just sit in the backyard and watch all of these, uh, I don't know, like gross specimens and animals come to the pool and watch it uh, flower. And here her motivation is essentially her husband. And it really speaks to both the absolute weakness of that stupid romance and also how the film doesn't like deserve the uh, pat on the back that it gives itself for featuring five female scientists, because there is a point at which uh, the there's a character who says something along the lines of like, oh, we're not just like five women, we're five scientists. And it really wants to be this like, you go girl moment. And at the same time, what you see in the movie, is just like them being killed off one by one. I really don't know, like, to what extent the movie really wants to be lauded for featuring five women um, as some sort of, like, feminist progress. But if they're not going to be seen doing any sort of science in the first place, it feels very superficial as this, like, progressive marker. Natalie Portman's character 
is definitely defined in a large way by her relationship. But I don't know if it's romance that's motivating her as much as it's guilt, because as we learn in flashbacks, she actually was cheating on her husband with a colleague. But that still brings us back to that relationship, even if it's guilt. Right. I mean, I, this is, I think we can briefly dispatch with that part of the story because I thought it was the weakest part of the movie by far. I absolutely <laughs> with dreaded those flashbacks. Music. Oh, yeah, the Stephen Stills. It's like a, a Crosby, Stills, and Nash song that plays in general to kind of establish the happiness of her past life with Oscar Isaac. But I'm talking about the flashbacks where she's having the affair with the colleague, the same guy that we see at the beginning detaining mm-hmm. her for a second to invite her to the party. I mean, maybe that was an important part of the novel. Maybe people need there to be another motivation for her to go. No, in the novel, her husband is dead. Oh, really? So there's no, oh, there's a huge change. It's a very loose adaptation. But anyway, the whole thing of the affair in the past, I just thought, who cares? Like, it's plenty. It reminded me of, you know, the the, the dead child motivation in science fiction, which you wrote about a bit, Ingu, and which I I think a lot of of critics have talked about. And one of the women in this movie is provided also with like a a dead child in the past that she's mourning. But, uh, But the affair seemed to have that similar kind of Ugh, that kind of fake emotional content. I actually disagree. I thought the affair became important, and maybe I'm reading more into this than Garland even intended, but we see that flashback shortly before Gina Rodriguez is screaming at Natalie Portman, you're a liar. And given the nature of the shimmer and what we've come to understand about it at this point, I wondered if a certain amount, because we know that Oscar Isaac either knew or suspected about the affair at this point, I'm wondering if some of his DNA was bouncing around in there and if Gina Rodriguez was sort of a conduit for it and some of her rage directed at Natalie Portman was actually her husband's rage manifesting. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're so close together, those two scenes, that I thought it can't possibly be a coincidence because when she was screaming, you're a liar at Natalie Portman, I was like, "Mm, she, she makes some fair points. So to bring us back to the night when Gina Rodriguez is turned torn apart by a bear, that now leaves us with three of the women, right? We now have Tessa Thompson, Natalie Portman, and Jennifer Jason Lee. Jennifer Jason Lee's character con- continues to be a horrible leader by deciding that she's going to strike out in the middle of the night by herself for the lighthouse because she's had it with this bullshit and she just wants to get to the end of the mission. It just it seems like it, it was a move that made me lose all sympathy for her character, who I sort of liked before. I historically loved Jennifer Jason Lee in anything. And uh, and she does play an interestingly enigmatic character in this. Um, but when she suddenly abandons them all to almost certain death just because she herself wants to go on with the mission, the, I, I kind of just sort of thought, I don't even care if I see that character again. It's so like weirdly sociopathic because she has knowledge about the area that she's not telling these women who she's pretty sure are going to die. Like it's beyond like abdication of responsibility. Yeah. I was more sympathetic toward her. I I saw this as for her always being a suicide mission, but also as a risk that they all sort of assumed, considering that no one has come back. I sort of saw Jennifer Jason Lee's main goal as being get to the center, find out what it is, if at all possible, destroy it. Uh, I don't think that I, I mean, she was very cavalier with the people around her. But at that point. It's threatening all of humanity. So the stakes yeah, are kind of high. I guess I see that. But it still just seems like in a movie like this, if you don't have comradeship established among the five women going in together, then as Inku says, like, what are your stakes? Mm. You know, if they're all just free agents who are suicidal and don't care whether they die or not, then why should why should we care? But she strikes off into the night. And then, OK, now we have to talk about the fate of Tessa Thompson's character, which you might regard as kind of the most positive of the deaths of the four (laughs) women who die in a way. Anybody want to take Tessa? Uh, So Tessa Thompson, earlier in the movie, we sort of get a rundown of what all of these characters' motivation for going into this horrible 
you know, situation is because the shimmer is very beautiful, but no one's ever returned. So we find out we know, you know, secretly Natalie Portman is going in because her husband is the only survivor. Um, It's implied or maybe outright stated that Gina Rodriguez's character is or was an addict who got sober, doesn't have a lot going on. Uh, And Tessa Thompson's character, we find out, uh, has practiced self-harm. She's a physicist. She's very young and timid compared to the rest of the group. Um, And she has scars up and down down her wrists. And she's the one who makes a major discovery about the nature of the Shimmer and why none of their communications can get out. Because the Shimmer refracts sort of everything back inside itself. So their communications, light, DNA, everything is sort of mutated or duplicated within the shimmer itself. And she discovers this when they first come upon this field. Another cool kind of art direction moment, even if you have no idea what it's supposed to kind of mean in the context of the movie. But they come across this field that's full of these plants that are kind of humanoid in shape. So they don't know whether they're human bodies that became plants after they died or whether plants somehow took on human characteristics. But they're basically kind of like flowering bushes in the shape of human beings. And so Josie decides that rather than push on, rather than struggle to get out, she sort of gives in to the shimmer. And it's a really beautiful scene where her scars actually start to bloom. And you see sort of flowers coming out of her. And then she walks into the forest and she's never seen from again. Yeah, well, there is a moment when Natalie Portman kind of peeks around a corner and there's another field of these plant people. And I think it's implied that we don't know which one of them Tessa is, but she's one of them, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Can I nitpick for a second? <laughs> Go for it, Ingo. <laughs> I mean, I uh, I totally understand that, like, the point of her character was that there is, like, beauty in this, like, otherworldly universe. And also that there is beauty in sort of uh, giving into a particular process or um, going off on a theme in this movie about uh, that there is like something inevitable about self-destruction or self-annihilation or whatever but it made me like weirdly really sad that that was her fate and that was like how it was aestheticized because it was clear that she was probably suffering from some sort of depression and the fact that the movie was just sort of like and look at this look at how like this beautiful woman like this beautiful sad woman uh beautifully sort of like gives into a sort of willing suicide like that really made me uneasy you mean because it was sort of romanticized her her own self-destructiveness? Yes. And also, there's this theme that is sort of haphazardly strung along in this movie about how uh, self-destruction and mutation are inevitable. And I, first of all, like, that's not developed very well. But to sort of... Um, I don't know, like, it almost felt like it was, like, pushing this girl into a death, um, which isn't, like, quite fair, but that's also the sentiment that I got. Um, I really did not like how romanticized and sentimentalized that whole fate was. I guess that didn't bother me in the context of the movie because the movie seemed to be slowly, as you say, it seemed to be more and more trying to make us question the idea, not always effectively, but trying to make us question the idea that what we regard as, you know, human life is the most desirable or kind of ultimate evolutionary form of life. And that happens much more toward the end when Natalie and everybody else gets mutated into strange things. But 
But it seemed like that was one of the first moments where anything could happen in the world of the Shimmer that wasn't, you know, being torn apart by a wild animal or, or something horrible. So I don't know. I, I see what you're saying now that, that you describe it. And maybe I'm, you know, an awful idealizer of female self-destruction. But I kind of liked Tessa Thompson's way of going. I mean, in general, I liked something about her character that was that came through both from her performance and from just the writing of it, which is that she wasn't this tough, stoic, incredibly brave mm-hmm. woman. She was really scared a lot of the time. And she was the first one to want to go back. And and just the idea that not every character in a movie about people on a mission has to be some sort of stone faced you know, person that's completely without fear. I, I like that that frail, frailty to her character. Yeah, I thought she and Gina Rodriguez, who sort of had a camaraderie in the film, too, both met with very interesting and very different deaths, um, which is maybe why I was not so bothered by the fact that these team members were being picked off one by one. Gina Rodriguez has her throat torn out by the screaming bear, and it's sort of a desperate, you know, rage-fueled animal that sort of mirrors her emotional state. And then I felt, you know, Josie in a similar way sort of faded into the landscape in a way that was very consistent with her character. And that was a lovely scene, especially since I was tired of all the people being ripped limb from limb at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then things only get weirder from there. So then Natalie has to continue on, get to the lighthouse. Again, without we've already established that they don't have any compasses that work or any tools, but somehow she knows. I guess she accompanies the the ocean. That's how she knows how to get to the lighthouse. And it's when she gets there that stuff gets really, really weird. You know, I kept thinking of uh, Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse just because of the title <laughs> while watching this. And I read that book so long ago that I can't remember Anything that happens in it, except that it collapses time in all kinds of ways that are vaguely, I guess, science fiction-y. Um, but anyway, when she makes it to the lighthouse, um, let's let's get into what happens there. First of all, the landscape gets freakier and freakier, right? Yes, I don't remember any ice trees or human bones in Virginia Woolf. Yeah. Maybe I'm misremembering. <laughs> um, but outside the lighthouse, as she approaches, there are these sort of glassy looking trees. Um, it's another very beautiful landscape. Uh, and Although, then, as Inku pointed out, they kind of look like the crystal foxes in Star Wars: <laughs> The Last Jedi, which, of course, Garland couldn't possibly have seen when planning this movie. I'm not saying he, or copied at least their their natural habitat, um, right? When they're not on other planets, um, and there are human bones outside the lighthouse, which are sort of arranged in a. I I wondered if they grew there or if this oh, was I like a they previous were like a team. ritual. I thought it was sort of a ritual graveyard. It did look like a ritual. Um, but I wondered who are those like sort of swamp people that got left behind? Was that a previous team that got this far? And then that was where they met their end. Um, but it's a very interesting landscape. And the lighthouse itself, when you go inside, has all this sort of uh, it looks like mushrooms, you know, growing all over. And it's really the focal point for all of the shimmer. Right. So once things get into the lighthouse, it's sort of like all bets are off and stuff gets really weird. So Natalie Portman walks in there and uh, and, and what does she see before her? She sees a sort of crater um, from an explosion with scorch marks, and there is a camera in the middle of the lighthouse pointed toward the site of the explosion. Right. And uh, it is, there's a skeleton right in the center of it. Yeah, there's kind of a stick skeleton sitting there in, in like the lotus position, this charred body. And a video camera has been set up that has apparently filmed its last moments. So, of course, she goes, of course, it works. She presses the button and she watches the story. And here's where stuff gets freaky enough that I actually have some questions for you guys as to what was even even on the most literal level supposed to be happening. Anybody want to take what she sees? Ingrid, you want to take that? Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) So if I recall correctly, uh, you see Oscar Isaac's character and he goes on to explain how... um, 
I think it's like how he isn't sure what's happening or what um, reality is essentially in this world. And so because he no longer feels tethered to his selfhood, he is going to kill himself. And so you see him take a phosphorus grenade um, and basically pull it. And right before he dies, you see a second Oscar Isaac. Well, he um, says to the guy behind the camera, if I die or no, after I die, if you get out of here, go and see my wife. Right. And with before oh, yeah. we see that figure, we hear that person agree to do that. Then he blows himself up. And that's when that figure steps out from behind the camera, becomes visible to the camera. And you see that it's Oscar Isaac, too. Or is it? <laughs> this is sort of a deep southern twang Oscar Isaac, too. Oh, that was another question I had for you guys. <laughs> he, we hear him talk very little when he gets back in those early sequences. So I didn't notice. But he didn't have a corn pone style southern accent, right? No, I think that was sort of the distinguishing mark. That and also the second Oscar Isaac's hair is kind of slicked back. <laughs> because he's evil. But why wouldn't Natalie Portman say when her husband came back, hey, you have had a southern accent ever since I've met you and you don't have it anymore? <laughs> he's not talking too much. His answers are very... I don't know. He's not showing much emotion. Maybe that's why. I mean, so there's a lot to ask about the second Oscar Isaac who steps in front of the camera. And obviously, Alex Garland wants to leave all that stuff open. But I mean, there are real questions. Is that uh, a double like the double that we're going to see Natalie Portman get in a minute? Is it a creature that just assumed his appearance right after he died? And is it sort of, you know, a a classic sci-fi evil double? Or is it some mutated version of him that could possibly still be a good person? I mean, I guess all that stuff is still supposed to be open, right? But I think the very ending of the movie. You get get the evil twin impression, Ingo? I did not get that impression. No, I was totally kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Slick back hair. No, I did think he was an evil twin when he first appeared. Well, he definitely is sort of an ominous figure, as as are the later doubles that we see. Um, But I was under the impression, and the movie leaves this question very, very open, so it's definitely open to interpretation, that the double both is and is not Oscar Isaac, and that even though we see what we assume is the original blow up it was that really the original i mean he's been so mutated at that point can you fairly say that that is the same man who came in who's to say that this other copy is not the same person based on the mutations it's very interesting it's an interesting question to ponder as you leave the theater but a lot of stuff happens after that that sort of pushes that question aside right because basically that is completely logical compared to everything that happens afterwards (laughs) So then Natalie Portman, here you have to give her some props because this is a very courageous thing to do. She crawls into the scary hole made by the meteor. She basically goes down this very vaginal, it's obviously supposed to be a sort of birth canal style cave with these, you know, like slimy walls. And And it's uh, black. The whole movie has been very bright and colorful up until this point. Right. But it's completely black in there. Right. And so she, yeah, and she goes into this, this dark enclosure because she hears a voice down there and it turns out to be... Jennifer Jason Lee Just tripping out of her mind. <laughs> yeah, when she first gets down there, and here's another question where I'm not sure of what I saw. This is sort of like the Oscar Isaac double thing. But doesn't Jennifer Jason Lee, when you first see her, before she turns around and looks at Natalie Portman, doesn't she have a weird face that's like a weird featureless, blank, alien face? Or was that yes. just a... Yes, right? Also, guys, I just realized this is like a really weird sequel to Single White Female. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying... <laughs> Yeah, 
exactly like 30 years later what we happens to it. the same two? <laughs> End of spoiler special. First she masturbates in your bed, then she turns into a floating space blob. So, yeah, so JJL has a weird faceless face, but then when she turns around to Natalie Portman, she doesn't. She has her normal face, but she's kind of speaking this gibberish that sounds a little bit like bad beat poetry or something. And She gets uh, the most important line in the movie, which is annihilation. <laughs> Somebody's got to say she, the title. And then she immediately turns into like a beam of light, which is what should happen in all movies when they say the title. Jake, it's Chinatown. <laughs> Beam of light. <laughs> transported. So, yes, yeah, she turns into a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, she kind of turns into a beam of light, but then that's then she be, she becomes sort of a, a bunch of floating iridescent blobs, and then they all coalesce into a big blob. And then there's a very direct reference, I think, to 2001 A Space Odyssey, where for quite a long time you just hear the freaky ambient score while kind of looking into the center of this fiery... I don't know, like vortex of some kind. And uh, Natalie Portman's witnessing all of this. And then a drop of blood from her face, um, left over from whatever her last violent encounter was, flies into, as if kind of magnetically attracted, it flies into the center of the space vortex blob that Jennifer Jason Lee has become. And then what? I actually can't even quite remember. take on a human shape. Um, and it still has sort of the swirling blob-like color is almost metallic, um, but it's this very alien-looking form that's sort of mimicking human form, much like the plants we saw earlier, but definitely way creepier and sort of looming and tall and featureless. And it's a very scary scene. Yeah, it's kind of like an iridescent okay. iridescent metalloid kind of creature. Okay, Ingu, what? But it's like not scary enough. <laughs> I was afraid, Ingrid. <laughs> I, I was afraid when it first appeared, but I started yes, to it, get sick of that creature in the following scene. When which it we left, get to. when it left the Black Cave, it definitely lost some of its effect uh, in terms of being sort of scary and foreign. Like on a certain sense, it's just sort of like a classic example of the uncanny, um, which is sort of like a Freudian concept where it's like a double. And you recognize it as a double, but that's also not really you. And so every time that it, what it does, um, once Natalie Portman climbs out of the, uh, once Natalie Portman climbs out of, (laughs) (laughs) thank you, the vagina, is it starts doing exactly what she does in this like weird like Groucho Marx mirror routine. It's not doing exactly what she does though, because it's not a direct mirror of her movements. It's sort of getting in her way, which I thought was interesting and sort of played into that self-destructive theme. Because if it were just mirroring mirroring her, she could control it. But instead, it's it thwarts her attempt to escape. She attacks it, then it attacks her. So it's not a direct mirror. Yeah, at, at times it, it does seem to be doing an actual, you're right, a Groucho and Harpo mirror routine. But then at other moments, it seems to be behaviorally imitating her. Like, she hits it, so it hits, hits her. Mm-hmm. My big complaint about the mirror monster is that you could almost sort of like see the scenes in the costume I felt like and whenever the um, actress would say uh, what's the word like bend a limb or bend at the hip you could see sort of like the little wrinkles on the fabric and it's such a tiny like nitpicky thing but that really took me out of the experience because if there had been more say visual uh, effects in the way that like you saw in Ex Machina and then I think um, it would have been like a more smoother visual experience and I would have really 
gotten that like otherworldly force that the movie kept telling me that it was. And instead, I just saw a this like balletic performance between two actresses. And I just thought, nah. You thought I mean, it looked like, too much like a morph suit, Ingu? What's a morph suit? It's one of those sort of full body suits that also goes over your face. You see them sometimes. Yeah, it's like a Power Ranger suit. Like, it just, like, looked cheap. And, like, that really just got me distracted from everything else. Interesting. I thought I thought it was a digital effect. I mean, I know there was an actress in a suit, but I just assumed that so many digital things had been done to the surface that all of those wrinklings were, were deliberate. I mean, to me, what got what got me down about that monster mirror scene is it was just too long. It went on for mm. so long that I felt like it lost its kind of symbolic force or its fear force. And it wasn't we didn't really learn anything about the creature or how you know, Natalie could deal with it during that sequence. It just, I think it, it milked the kind of basic weirdness of being locked in a lighthouse with an iridescent mirror version of yourself too long. Ballet and, is a good word for it because it's also a long stretch of the movie that's completely wordless. I mean, Jennifer Jason Lee says annihilation and then we go a good 10, maybe 15 minutes where mm-hmm. it's mostly just the formation of this being and then Natalie Portman fighting this being. And then the being suddenly starting to take on Natalie Portman's features. Why does it do that at that particular moment? I don't get that. It's her DNA. duplicate within the shimmer, much like Oscar Isaac. Yeah, but but duplicate. but why did it spend so long being like a rainbow monster and then and start looking it's getting like her. to know her? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so so ultimately, let's talk about how she destroys the mirror monster and the lighthouse. I'm hoping someone can tell me because I she she takes a grenade, much like Oscar Isaac. And she hands it to her duplicate, which is starting to look like her and sort of alternating between Natalie Portman features and this sort of morph suit of swirling you know, color. And she hands the grenade to her duplicate. And I forget if she pulls the plug or it pulls the plug. I think she does. But the resulting explosion destroys the shimmer gradually, which I... I sort of wondered about that because I don't think that they were trying to suggest that, you know, this single grenade could literally destroy the shimmer. I wondered if it was like a psychological thing, like she by putting her mind into the shimmer, she could like sort of persuade it to destroy itself. But I'm interested in what you guys think about that. I mean, to me, that uh, was a strangely disappointing ending. I mean, this, this is supposed to be something that defies all scientific laws, but it can be destroyed by just fire, just plain old fire. Didn't they try setting fire to it before? <laughs> Yeah, also, I mean, Oscar Isaac also pulled a phosphorus grenade, and that didn't destroy the shimmer. But he intended to destroy destroy himself. I'm wondering if by having her duplicate sort of complicit in this, if she sort of mentally, I don't know, this is... That is such bad (laughs) sci-fi. My head hurts. It didn't even occur to me, because that is the most obvious spoiler special question in the world. Like, why didn't everything burn down when Oscar Isaac destroyed himself? If all you have to do is... Pull the pin of a phosphorus grenade. Here is my secret pet theory that I like to entertain. My idea is that the woman who comes back to Benedict Wong is actually not Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman is actually dead inside the lighthouse. And because we don't really know if the story that she's telling Benedict Wong is true or not, because she has every... Because if she actually, because if the uh, version of Natalie Portman who makes it back is actually 
the alien and has every reason to lie. And as we know, Natalie Portman is a liar. And <laughs> it takes on this every single fucking facet of the person because DNA. And so I think that Natalie Portman, there's a point at which like she's struggling against like her uh like what's the word her double and she passes out and then she wakes up right and it's possible i think that she just sort of like passes out the alien figures out like hey here's a way for me to like get out and uh do whatever so i think that it's actually natalie real natalie portman goes down the uh fake alien Natalie Portman makes up this whole story about like how the lighthouse burned down and then makes it out to like reunite with fake Oscar Isaac. There's definitely a lot to support that theory, especially at the very end when the Natalie Portman that we've seen in the in the flash forward scenes in the framing device finally gets to reunite with her husband, who's now fine. His illness has disappeared along with the shimmer, which has been destroyed I do wonder, though, because... But they both have, like, shimmery eyes. Right. I I do wonder, though, because the very last scene is the two of them together, and Oscar Isaac says, well, I'm not sure I'm Kane, which is the name of her her husband. Um, And we've seen the duplicate, you know, and we've seen what we assume is the original Oscar Isaac blow himself up. So that is interesting, And but... And then doesn't he say, are you Lena? And then she doesn't reply. She doesn't reply. So there's definitely a lot there to support that theory that she's not the original Lena. But I wonder, is that because the duplicate survived or is it because her DNA has so mutated that it's sort of hard to determine what makes her the original Lena? I mean, how much of her is has been changed by the shimmer? I didn't necessarily think that it was her duplicate who escaped, but I, I thought more she was so fundamentally changed that she was no longer sure because she does not answer. But it is his duplicate who escapes. Do we think that? Do we agree on that? So that when she embraces, I mean, to me, when they embrace at the end, which is the end of the movie, right? She finds him back at the sterile facility. He seems to be fine now. He asks if she's really Lena and she doesn't reply. And I think that's the last line of the movie. Then they embrace and then you get close-ups of both of their eyes having like a little bit of rainbow shimmer. So they both are either aliens or have been at least invaded by alien DNA. And the way I read that moment was that she was kind of accepting him in his new <laughs> alien self. Like, it's all right, honey, that you got taken over by an alien and that, that that they were not evil aliens who were about to take over the world, but that they were in the same way that Tessa Thompson's death is kind of, you know, both beautiful and awful, that they were... The sign of some new form of altered life. We've been saying an alien, and the movie also says this. Benedict Wong's character says, oh, so it was an alien. I kind of wondered about that because certainly whatever it was was alien yeah, and foreign. But I, I don't know that it – to me it didn't seem like it was sentient, like a creature who was trying to invade. It seemed more like a force that had arrived there maybe by accident, maybe on purpose – and sort of conformed the environment to whatever it is. I mean, I didn't think of Lena's duplicate as an alien so much as I thought of the shimmer as being sort of an alien force. Right. Well, I mean, Jennifer Jason Lee says when she's first describing it, it might be a theological event, which I thought mm-hmm. was a cool, like, it was, that was a kind of, it was never explored after that, but it's kind of a weird concept that, you know, maybe God would just decide to interfere with, with world events in that way and change the, the pace of evolution. 
Ingu, what did you think? I mean, the end the end is so open-ended. It's one of those endings that you could say, wow, it leaves it open to interpretation of the viewer and it's so cool. Or you could just say, like, that is annoying that it didn't resolve something so important. How, how did it leave you in feeling about these two embracing weirdos? There's a particular type of ending that I, th- I think I see, like, more in plays than in movies, but I but that I did encounter in Annihilation in that the ending and like sort of the premise that it sets up as the conclusion is so much more interesting than anything else that came before it that I really wished there was, I mean, I didn't want to watch a sequel, but I was like very annoyed that like where it ended up was so much more interesting as like a conflict or a tension than where um, it had been this whole time. I mean, I guess the question about a sequel would be, will the sequel be some sort of Planet of the Apes thing where all human life gets wiped out by this new form, right? Or is it is it more the case that they will adapt themselves to the world and, I don't know, bring bring enlightenment with their alien science or something? I just, I mean, I sort of wanted to know walking out, like, I'm sorry to be so morally simplistic, but I wanted to know, is it a good thing or a bad thing <laughs> that she's embracing alien Oscar Isaac? Annihilation. <laughs> <laughs> My mind became a no floating good, block. No good, no bad. I think it really speaks to the lack of characterization, though, that um, you felt really dissatisfied by where it ended up. And I was really annoyed that, um, like, there, that the movie was completely unyielding about what this extraterrestrial force was supposed to mean. Because so much of this movie was about sort of like the limited human perspective on mutation and on this sort of like genetic threat. And I thought the, that idea was interesting enough that like it would be interesting to see how that would play out in the rest of the world beyond the shimmer. But we never really got that. Right. I mean, you're just making me realize that it is not unlike the ending of Ex Machina, of Alex Garland's yeah. debut film, w- in which we see this, a you know, sort of half AI, half human creature, also something that is sort of beyond the human or the next step beyond human, played by Alicia Vikander, stepping out into the world. And you have that similar sense of, OK, is she going to be a threat to the world or is she going to bring something good to the world? All we know is that she's going to be something entirely new in the world. So, you know, maybe that's his his thing. I mean, you you have to give him this like he... You can't exactly say he pursues ideas in this, but he pursues his images and obsessions very, uh, very doggedly. All right. I want to end on a little sidebar because, Marissa, <laughs> you have written at least twice, I think, for Slate and interviewed the composer. Oh, three times. Three okay. Times. <laughs> so this has become your beat now. I should have introduced you as weird annihilation sound writer. The preferred terminology is weird annihilation noise. But <laughs> yes, I have become sort of obsessed with this one particular musical cue. It only appears once in the film, but it was very prominently used in the trailer. Uh, Can we hear it right now? Uh, The composers of the movie are Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow. Uh, I actually spoke to Salisbury about this particular noise. Uh, I'm not terribly musical, so I have alternately been calling it the five-note melody or the four-note melody. Uh, He tells me it's actually four and three, but it's been so sort of processed um, because it's a synth noise that it's hard to tell. Um, But I found it just really arresting in the trailers for this movie. I remember seeing The Last Jedi and Annihilation was one of the trailers beforehand. And when I left the movie theater after having seen The Last Jedi for the first time, I turned to my friend and I was like, oh, that sound in the Annihilation trailer was great. Um, But as I've been writing about it, I'm finding that other people had the same reaction. So it doesn't actually occur 
in the film with the same frequency that it did in the trailer. It's all the way in the third act, and it appears as part of the sort of ballet between Natalie Portman and her duplicate. And it specifically appears when the it's the piece of music is actually called The Alien, but the duplicate sort of rises at one point and you hear the noise and it's very satisfying. So you spent a long time in your first viewing waiting for that noise to come along because it's far from it's not like the Close Encounters theme where it structures the entire movie. Right. It's very far in. So I sat in the theater the first time I watched the movie with a stopwatch waiting for the noise. And it is one hour, 37 minutes and approximately 10 seconds into the film. You know, it's funny before I saw the film or had really read any reviews of it or had even read you on it. I just knew that you were obsessed with the sound and that Slate was covering your, <laughs> your obsession with the sound. And so I deliberately didn't read any of that so that I could see if I could recognize the sound. And I ended up not being able to. I mean, the, the, the score, which I think is really good, is full of so many strange unearthly sounds and weird sound effects that that particular theme didn't leap out and haunt me. Did it to you, Inku? Um, I also knew that Marissa <laughs> was uh, tracking the sound really carefully. And I actually had not watched the trailer um, beforehand because I really like to go in without knowing anything about a movie when possible. Um, so I went in, no trailer. And of course, it was like in the back of my mind. And I knew that it took place later in the movie. And so when it started making that weird like boyoying sound that <laughs> you were referring to earlier with 2001, um, I sort of assumed that that was it. So I guess, no, like, I also did not really take great note of it. Sorry, Marissa. Yeah, it was part <laughs> no of, offense taken. Part of the general haunting <laughs> soundscape. And I would say, I mean, if you are a cinephile and you're into sound design and, and production design, I mean, this movie offers a lot of cool things to look at and listen to and think about. Um, as you can see from all three of our dissatisfaction, not all of those things are necessarily brought into thematic cohesion. But uh, but there's plenty of people that are still walking out of this movie dazzled. So I think I would say to answer my own question from the beginning that I would send the right kind of friend. I would send a person who is willing to tolerate ambiguity and who was interested in sort of offbeat science fiction that doesn't do what you expect mainstream science fiction to do. Wholeheartedly agree. And Ingu, it doesn't sound like you're quite there. I guess I have bad friends. <laughs> <laughs> that expect movies to make sense. God damn it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for the, the two of you for coming in. You actually really did help me at least understand my miscomprehension of some parts of this movie. And it was really fun to talk about it with you. Thanks for having us, Dana. Thanks. And thank you to all of you for listening. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like this show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil in the future or any other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. For Marissa and Ingu, I'm Dana Stevens. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.